Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like, where are you from? There was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. Episode 4, Tina Lives. Cool, sweet Colorado and gnarly figs. Diana held her temper for as long as she could, but she had been simmering for a couple of days now. After she let her anger out on us kids with whatever kind of lashing we got, lip or whip, we were sent to our bunk beds. This was a relief to be sure, but in the summertime, the bunk beds were hot and sticky, and the up and down motion of travel was nauseating. While lying safe and bored on the top of our beds, we could hear her pernicious tongue wagging at Paul. You could tell he was ignoring her, and with good reason. He was focused on carefully navigating the bus along the treacherously winding roads that cut through the mountain pass of whatever state we were traveling through. Sometimes you didn't have to wait long for Diana to get over herself, and in one flash of the crazy eye, her fun and lively personality would come tap dancing out and shine brightly on the world. She lived life in a series of delusions, and so the last minute of hell that everyone had just suffered through, gone, never happened. And like a sweet and loving mother, she would then suggest that we all go outside and have a picnic, which is exactly what we did at an overlook on a Colorado mountaintop. The first thing I noticed about Colorado was the sweet, fresh, breathable air. Being a kid from Cleveland, my nostrils had never flared with such joy and bliss. Simply inhaling gave me a smile, and for a minute I almost loved my mother. Maybe it was the tall, cool trees that made me feel love, or the babbling brook that ran alongside our red checkered tablecloth. Whatever it was, I was strangely overcome with calm, peace, and something new, a knowing. Diana wasn't important at all. Her beauty was lesser than Mother Nature's, and her wrath, although impressive, could never compete. I gazed gently at her in this new light, nibbling on my peanut butter and jelly sandwich, as a soft breeze tickled my cheek. But the rejuvenation of that day came and went, and the inside of the bus went from hot to broiling hot as we entered the desert. I didn't know what state we were in because for me, America had long since blended into one boring mile after the other. Today it was the desert, and it stretched on and on and on. Not soon enough, we stopped at a souvenir shop to let the bus's engine cool down. There was a large totem pole in front of the shop, dream catchers hanging from the porch, and a teepee over to the side. A young woman with shiny black hair braided down to the center of her back asked me if I wanted to step inside the teepee and have a look. My eyes got wide, and a little rush of excitement tickled my insides. 
The teepee looks so unique and inviting, like a cartoon come to life. The lady lifted back a flap, and I walked in all by myself. There was a lot more room than I had envisioned, and I sat down in the middle of the teepee on the canvas floor. The air was cool and tranquil, and the impenetrable scorching sun cast a golden hue of light. My knees wouldn't let me sit cross-legged like a true American Indian, but I did my best. I closed my eyes and pictured my life as a little Indian girl, and in a centered point of clarity, I realized that my mother was correct. I did not belong to her family. Somewhere along the way, there had been a mistake. I was actually the daughter of someone who lived in a teepee in a desert far away from Cleveland, far away from this bus, and far away from this white woman. My fantasy was clear and brilliant, and nothing made more sense to me. But a sinister reality came screeching through the smoke and haze of my imaginary peace pipe as I heard the white woman yell, "Tina!" The endless miles of sweltering heat finally broke when we set up camp at a KOA park in California. Our site was cool, dark, and woodsy, and the air was light and sweet with pine and campfire. I was given a bicycle and freedom, and off I went to explore nature. Paul and Diana had left the campsite to go make money. How they did that, I had no idea, but I did hear something about making muffins. My only concern was spending my days riding along the soft dirt paths of the park and making friends with the other camp kids. Kathy, Tony, Lisa, and I gathered together with these children, and we became a magical group, playing the primordial games of childhood, free from the agony of adults. Just before dusk, Paul would build a mighty campfire, and once it died down, Diana would place pots and pans along the edge and cook us up a healthy dinner. In an unfamiliar act of family unity, we would lounge around the popping embers and crisp hot flames, a band of road-weary misfits searching for an identity. Diana was at peace here, and therefore sleep was sound. The joy of waking up under a canopy of tall, strong trees was sincere bliss, and the smell of pine a natural antiseptic for the scourge of crazy that was my family. Paul and Diana had every intention of giving us a proper childhood, and between her bouts of insanity, we certainly had more adventures than most kids. We stopped at every iconic American landmark, including Old Faithful, where Tony got into trouble for peeing into one of the geyser springs. We visited the presidents of Mount Rushmore, and we took horseback rides on every mule that would have us. Once we got deeper into California, we swam in the Pacific Ocean and visited the San Diego Zoo. But it was in the Disneyland parking lot where Diana's madness reared its ugly head again. It all started with dried figs. She wanted me to eat them. She had never presented figs before, and to me they looked vulgar and disgusting. The crinkly, shriveled up, bleach brown color looked like the skin of an old person. And when Diana cut one in half and placed it on a square of white napkin, 
I saw that the white crevices were loaded with sticky globs of stuck-together seeds. There was no way in hell I was going to put one of those in my mouth. So when she wasn't looking, I wrapped the figs in the little white napkin and threw it out the window of the bus. Of course they were found, and my punishment for either not eating or for throwing them out the window was no food for three days. I spent those three days throwing up watery vomit in the bunk bed, which was never cleaned up other than being absorbed by the clothes that I was wearing. Berkeley or bust. On our way to Berkeley to find a place to live, we picked up every hitchhiker standing on the side of the road with a pointed thumb or a sign that read Berkeley or bust. The hitchhikers made me happy because they took the pressure off our family. Diana needed people to debate with and we were relieved when it didn't have to be us. The only drag that came from having a constant flow of vagabonds parading in and out of our hot bus was the smell. The hippie smell was a potpourri of fragrances. B.O., patchouli, marijuana, raw food farts, and incense. But other than that, it was nice to have them around. They were usually young and fun, and they brightened up our lives. Several of the boys were very cute, and they caught the attention of my impending hormones. I found Berkeley to be a beautifully bizarre place. There was a strange electric vibe in the air that felt almost dangerous. We walked up and down a street called Telegraph Ave, lined with hundreds of people, either selling stuff or begging for money. We were looking for a soup kitchen. The colorful carnival of tie-dye, hippies, hair, and musk was very intriguing, but I felt like I was at a party that I was far too young to be attending. Some of the hippies were dancing in a strange, contorted manner, as if to the beat of electric shock therapy. They twined and twisted their bodies while pawing at invisible objects in the air. And hardly anyone wore shoes. And they all looked like they could use a bath. Finally, standing in a long line for the soup kitchen, I could see that the street party atmosphere lived on behind the closed doors of the church. We carried our trays of food to a table and ate calmly in a bubble of wide-eyed fascination while my mother made friends with what she called all the beautiful people. A man in a wheelchair caught my attention, and I couldn't stop staring. He looked a little bit like a hippie, but older, sadder, and tormented. He had long hair and a straggly beard, and he was missing both of his legs. There was an American flag and a picture of an eagle on his hat, and his wheelchair looked like it carried not only him, but all of his personal possessions. His index and middle fingers were brown at the tip from smoking cigarettes. He wheeled over to a table with a tray of food on his lap, and then he ate very slowly with his head down. He sat alone in a room surrounded by people who protested the war he had just returned from. For me, he put meaning to a phrase I had heard a lot but didn't quite understand. Vietnam.
We parked the bus in an RV trailer park and started morphing into hippies. We attended so many different rallies that it became hard to distinguish one cause from another. There were peace rallies, war protests, lovin's, be-ins, and just plain old gatherings. We were always chanting loudly for or against something, and we kept our hands in a perpetual two-fingered sign of peace or the clasped-handed fist of black power. In August of 1969, on the other side of the country, the weekend of Woodstock was taking place in New York State. But living in a bus in Berkeley meant that Woodstock was happening every single day of our lives. I was much happier as a hippie kid than a Catholic schoolgirl. I loved the gatherings, and for the most part, I loved the people. They were wild, wacky, and free, and I never wanted the days of musicians, jugglers, mimes, and naked ladies dancing in Golden Gate Park to end. When September came around, we were still living in the RV park. By law, we had to go to school. So Paul and Diana sent us to a free school, which was run by hippies, but open to all children. Compared to Catholic school, it was a much kinder education, focused on things that really mattered, the arts, nature, and just plain old learning to get along with each other. Kathy, Tony, and I were still rough around the edges from our early years as kids from Cleveland, and like our father, we fought hard and played hard. Tony was physically aggressive, and I was bossy and domineering. Kathy was always in the middle trying to smooth over the messes that Tony and I created with the other children who were sweet and soft like the petals of a fragile flower, and not at all from Cleveland. As it turned out, Berkeley was a bust, and we needed to find a house before the California winter set in. We had been living in the bus for several months, and life was feeling very crowded and cramped. It was sad to leave the RV park because we'd made friends, and Diana had become mellow due to the soft and sunny California vibe that had been shining on us every day with its warm sense of adventure. Back on the road, as the stern green bus redoubt low-geared its way onto the freeway, it began to look like we were in a parade of psychedelic migration. Our bus had ended up in the middle of the Rainbow People caravan, and there were multicolored buses in front of us and behind us. The on-ramp to the highway was swarmed with the omnipresent carnival of hitchhiking hippies, thumbs out, signs up, and a cloud of smoke swirling around them. But for us, the party was over, and we headed north on 580 to a suburban town called El Cerrito, California. We moved into a little house with a lemon tree in the backyard where Paul spent his time making granola and listening to national public radio. We stayed long enough to experience a warm Christmas, but left before the teacher learned to correctly pronounce my last name. It was still winter when we packed up the bus and headed back to Cleveland. For what reason, I did not know.